Good morning. It's good to be with you today. Uh, my name is Chuck Askew, and uh, as was mentioned, I am the campus minister for RUF at NC State University and Meredith College, go Pack. Um, and this is my 15th year of doing campus ministry, and I'm still around campus ministry because I love it. I'm excited because in just a few days, freshmen are going to be flooding onto the campus of NC State, which is a great opportunity for me to bring the gospel into the lives of those that have never heard it, as well as help bring the gospel into the, the hearts of students that are wondering, do I still want to hold fast to the faith that my parents exposed me to? And it's a great opportunity for me to equip students to reach out to the new students and to have my students from the past few years be trained and equipped to go and to proclaim the gospel to their peers. It's a beautiful ministry that I get to do and I thank you for the ways that this church has been a, an encouragement uh, to me and to my staff and prayed with and for us for the campus. Be in prayer this coming few weeks as we continue to represent you on the campus of NC State. But it is a pleasure to be with you and to reacquaint myself with some of you who I've known for a while and hopefully get to know some of you that uh, uh, I haven't yet met. Um, but uh, because this isn't a place that I usually come, I got here today by faith in the work of someone else. I had to rely on the work of someone named Gladys West. Any of you all familiar with the name Gladys West? If you don't, you really should go down the rabbit hole of exploring her life because it's a remarkable life. She grew up in rural Virginia, the daughter of sharecroppers. And she went to school and discovered she was brilliant. She had a uniquely gifted mind, and so she excelled throughout school. She graduated her high school, the valedictorian, and won a full scholarship to college. She went off to college and studied math, where she excelled and thought, well, I want to go and teach. So she spent a few years teaching math, but decided she still wanted to learn more about math. So she went back and got her PhD in mathematics. And after that, she was given an opportunity to use her research skills and her math skills at the Naval Surface Warfare Center. A tremendous opportunity for an African-American female in the 1950s to enter into a white male-dominated space because she was so gifted. They wanted her there, and they gave her a tremendously hard problem. You know, the Navy needs to know where things are. It's, it's vital to life and to war. And the problem that the Navy faced is that our Earth is not a perfect sphere. You may think, oh, it's like a globe. It's like a ball, but it's not. Our Earth is more of an ellipsoid. It's kind of squashed at the middle. And it's not even a perfect ellipsoid because it kind of has contours. It goes up and down. So you can't reliably trust the curvature of the globe to be able to pinpoint precisely where ships are. And they gave her this hard problem. And she created a whole set of, of equations that helped to bring precision to understanding our complex globe so that way Navy ships could know where they are in the midst of warfare or even traveling. And those calculations are the foundation of what you and I use daily when we pull out our phone and put in an address. Those calculations are the foundation of GPS. Her work is what I trusted to get here today. 
Now, how crazy would it be for me to uh, this morning wake up and say, well, I got to get to Trinity Park, and that means I got to do all these calculations and to pull out my calculator and my notebook paper and start trying to figure out the curvature of the globe to get here. That would be a tremendous waste of time, and I probably would have ended up in South Carolina because I'm not great at math. But instead, I rested in the work of someone greater than me. And the author of Hebrews wants us to have this kind of perspective when we think about Jesus, that there is one who is greater than us, who has laid a path before us and spoken to us things that, that we need to know so that we would listen to him and follow him, so that we would listen to him and rest in what he wants us to see, to rest in what he has said to us and to follow his voice. This passage calls us to listen to him. Today, as we look at this passage, there's two points that I want to reflect on. The fact that God speaks and the fact that God speaks by his son. But before we begin to dive into that, I'm going to pause and pray that God would bless our time. I ask you to pray along with me in your hearts. Father, we thank you that you are present with us even now and that it is your words and your work that changes our hearts. We pray that you would use your word and spirit to lead us. For Jesus' sake, amen. The first thing that I want you to see that this passage begs you to understand is that God is a God who speaks. God is a God who wants you to know him. God is a God who invites you into a relationship through communicating to you about who he is. And, and this is something that we can easily assume, that we can easily move past. Because in our culture, that's what we've come to assume that a God is like. But as this author is writing, the, the context is, is that, that in this time, gods weren't like that. The gods that, that other people worshipped were different. There were gods that you would have to discover they were gods that you would have to do something like, to sacrifice, to go through these rites of initiation, to demonstrate your faithfulness to them before they would ever tell you about themselves. Thinking about that, listen again to verse 1 and, and hear the, the surprising nature of what the author says. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. At many times and in many ways, God spoke. The author of Hebrews wants you to, to see and to know and to understand that the nature of God is one who has constantly been coming into this world, constantly speaking to people in, in different ways and in different times to communicate to them about himself. This is a different kind of God than people were used to. A God that was making the time, the effort, the energy to reveal himself to people. One time we were having dinner as a family and, and I had shared something and then it kind of got, as you might have experienced before, kind of got lost in a thought. And I was kind of staring off and, and reflecting on something. And the table kind of got quiet. And then one of my children kind of broke in and said, Dad, I want to know what your inner thoughts are. It was cute, but it was also compelling. This child was, was saying, I want to get to the inside. I see that there's something important there, and I want to know it. 
But think about how the author of Hebrews kind of flips that script. That child said that out of love and wanted to find out what was going on inside of me, but, but God is different. He doesn't wait for us to pursue him. He says, I want you to know my inner thoughts. I want you to get me, to know me, to understand the depths of me. And so I'm going to come into this world again and again and again to reveal myself to you that you might know me. He doesn't wait for us to pursue him. But he comes and pursues us by revealing himself to us. And the whole Old Testament demonstrate this. The, the Bible begins with God speaking forth creation, a speak act that brings into this world uh, everything that we see, and through that to give a glimpse of who he is. As Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Why? Because they're glimpses of him who he is in his creativity, his glory, his power, his beauty. And then he speaks to Adam. He, as a kind of father would, he brings Adam into this world, and then he teaches him about this world and life. And we see him speaking to Noah, going and warning Noah of the, the destruction to come to save, to redeem Noah so that, that humanity can continue through Noah. We see him go to Moses and in a burning bush appear to Moses and say, I've heard the cries of my people. I've seen their affliction, and I will redeem them I will rescue them and I want them to know me and so he gives Moses his name Yahweh I am who I am we see the the people of Israel after they're brought into the land and, and the desire to kind of establish that land as a place for God and so David says I'm going to build God a house here but God comes and says no I don't want you to establish me I want to establish you in this land and so I will build your house we see this land become a place where people forget God, and so God comes and speaks to the prophet Jeremiah and says, I am going to make a new covenant, a new promise, where no longer is it going to be that, that people are going to have to teach each other about me, but they are going to know me from the least to the greatest. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this theme of, of not people pursuing God and saying, God, speak to us, but God pursuing people and saying, here I am. This is what I want. This is who I am. Know me. This is the nature of God. And that is what the author wants you to see when he says, at many times and in many ways, God speaks. Every act of revelation is an act of grace a giving of oneself to invite another into love and intimacy. God speaks because he wants you to know him, because he loves you and wants to have fellowship and intimacy, a relationship with you. But as the text points out, there was an intermediary it says that many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This would be like Moses, someone who would hear directly from God and then would go and communicate to the people about God. And this was in part because the people couldn't take hearing God's voice. You actually see this in Exodus chapter 20 where you have the Ten Commandments given. God himself speaks out the commandments. And afterwards, the people call Moses over and say, hey, not again. <laughs> We can't handle hearing directly from God's voice. Let God speak to you, and then you tell us what he said. The people needed, in a sense, a step-down converter. It was too glorious to hear God's voice, and so they needed an intermediary. 
And so this passage tells us that God spoke, but so often spoke through the prophets. But that wasn't good enough for God. He's a God who has a heart for you to know him, and he didn't want an intermediary to be the way that you came to know him. And so this passage says in verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, But in these last days, there the author wants you to understand there's a beauty, a greatness to what God has spoken, but but there's something greater that we have now. There's a greater form of communication, a greater form of revelation, an even more gracious and loving act of God to invite you into knowledge, and that is Jesus. Jesus, the eternal Son of God who became flesh, has entered into this world as a way that God is trying to communicate to you the depths of who he is. The climax of God's work of revealing himself to his people is seen in Jesus. How could he speak to people when when people couldn't hear his voice because of the glory? He does it by becoming one of his people by taking on to himself humanity, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, the word made flesh who dwelt among us. He takes on humanity so that instead of speaking through an intermediary, speaking through a prophet, he could be the prophet and speak himself to his people. The author wants you to see the beauty of God speaking so that you see even more the transcendent beauty of the fact that God himself speaks to you through Jesus. But then he wants to build your confidence in what you hear through Jesus. And so he begins to show you why Jesus is the best way that God could speak to you. So in verse 2, he gives you three different aspects of Jesus that show you why Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. And I want to spend some time unpacking these three things. He says in verse 2, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He speaks of Jesus as the son, the heir, and the creator. And those three things help us to see how Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. First, he talks about Jesus being the son. Now, when we think about sons and fathers, we usually think about like genetics, DNA, genealogy. But when the author of Hebrews is here speaking about the nature of Jesus' son, he has a different mindset that he's thinking about. Because back in this time, to be the son, it was almost a sense of destiny. To be the son would, would shape your life because you would be like your father. Think about Jesus. Jesus was called the carpenter's son. Why? Because the expectation was that if the father was a carpenter, he would be a carpenter. Jesus didn't have a guidance counselor who he went to and said, well, I kind of like doing stuff with wood. Well, why don't you be a carpenter? No, he was the carpenter's son because his father was a carpenter. And when they say, is not this the carpenter's son, they're kind of saying, well, all he really knows about is wood. All he really knows about is carpentry because you would know what your father knew. And what your father knew would shape what you could do in this world. 
And so in a way, it's kind of a slight to say that you don't know much about God. All you know about is carpentry because that's who your father is. But then think about how he says that Jesus is the son. Because what he's doing there is saying that there is this unique knowledge of God that Jesus alone knows. There's a unique understanding of God that Jesus alone knows. The Father's wisdom, the Father's knowledge, the Father's understanding of this world, all of those things the Son knows best and most. There's no one better to carry on the legacy of the Father than the Son. And the author of Hebrews is, is wanting you to get this aspect of Jesus because it helps you understand why he is the greatest way that we can ever know God. And he kind of brings this out by contrasting Jesus with, with angels. You know, it was common in this time to think of angels as, as a great way to hear from God. They are God's messengers. They bring words from God like we see with the angels that came to Mary and Joseph to tell them about the birth of Jesus. But the author wants you to see Jesus as being greater than the angelic messengers as a way to hear from God. And the reason why is because they may be messengers, but he is the son. So in verse Five, we read, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Do you get what the author of Hebrews is wanting you to see? God never has an angel have that intimate level of knowledge about him that, that a son would of a father but that Jesus is unique because he has that intimate knowledge of the Father, has learned from the Father, understood the Father, gotten the Father in a way that no one else can. And because he is the Son, we can know best that, that everything that he says reflects perfectly the nature of the Father. Which is why, as he says in verse 3 about Jesus, that he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. There he's kind of referring to the, the idea of how you would take a coin and that coin would perfectly reflect the dye that it was used, that was used to cast it. You would pour the metal into the dye and you'd pop out a coin that would be a perfect reflection of that dye. And he says Jesus is like that, a perfect reflection of the Father. But he isn't just a, a copy of the Father, like a coin kind of feels like a copy of the die. But as he says, he's the radiance of the glory. And by saying that he's the radiance of the, the glory, he's reminding us that he isn't just a copy of God, he isn't just a reflection of God, but he is very God of very God. And this is different than the angels. As he says in verse 6, did God ever say, let all God's angels worship him? Or of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. The angels have a glory that comes from God, that is made by God, but Jesus has a glory that is in and of himself. He is glorious. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us, as John says. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace 
upon grace. He's the fullness of the glory of God. And because of that, because he is the Son who perfectly reflects into the world the knowledge of God, we can know God best through him. Think about it this way. Have you, like me, started using a lot more exclamation points? I use a lot more exclamation points than I used to, and it's, it's in texting, because I have discovered that if I send a text without an exclamation point, then sometimes people think my text is angry. And it's not because I'm using angry words, but a lack of an exclamation point can, can feel kind of angry. And so I find myself saying, I probably should put an exclamation point here so that they would know I'm happy. Or maybe even two exclamation points so that know that, no, really, I'm happy. And in a sense, this is also what we do with emojis, right? Emojis that you put in a text are a way to say, hey, look at what my face looks like in real life. I'm laughing now, so I have a little smiley, laughy face. Texting is a flat medium. And so people could misunderstand our text, so we, we put things in to give a sense of fullness, a roundness to what we're trying to communicate. And in a sense, that is what we get with Jesus, a fullness of God's heart, so that it's not like the prophet's a flat medium, but it's, it's the depth of who he is in fullness, so that, that as we hear Jesus speak, we not only hear the words, but we see the manner in which he speaks, the way that in compassion and kindness he would speak to the broken, to the ostracized, to the weak, and draw them to himself, just even in the manner of the words that he speaks, the way that he would speak in such tender ways, saying things like, Mary, Mary, to show the love that he would have for one of his creatures, the, the way that he would speak to, to the children who were second-class citizens, beckoning them to himself because no matter how least or weak they were in the eyes of the people, they were so important to him. And all those things are the way that he brings the fullness of the heart of the Father into the words that he spoke. Jesus gives us the depth and the fullness of the heart of God. But we understand that heart of God, not just because of what he says or even the way that he said it, but we see that because as a son, he does what the father would do. And this really comes home in the way that, that the author of Hebrews tells us after making purification for sins after making purification for sins. And there he's talking about the cross, that, that on the cross that Jesus did purify his people by taking onto himself the wrath that we deserve so that our sins do not come upon our head but on his head. So that we can stand uncondemned before a perfect and glorious God. But what we remember, by remembering that he is the son, is what he is doing is not contrary to the heart of the father. It's not, and we can easily begin to slip into this thinking, it's not that, that God is angry and Jesus assuages that anger by making purification of sins. It's not that he is convincing God to give us a second chance, convincing God to love us. But what we see on the cross is not Jesus acting against God, but Jesus acting in light of God. 
The cross shows you the heart of the Father. The cross shows you exactly what the Father would do in this world. Because as a son, every way that Jesus thinks and acts in this world reflects completely the way that the Father would think and act in this world. And so that tells us that in the cross, it's not something that is against the Father as Jesus tries to help us, but is the very will of the Father to see his people redeemed at his own cost. Jesus, as the Son on the cross, shows us the fullness of the heart of God himself, the way that he wants to move into our life, not just telling us about himself, but bringing us to himself at his own cost. Grace upon grace, as John says. That's what we see, and that is what we hear in the revelation of Jesus as the Son but the author of Hebrews wants us to see that, that it's not just that Jesus is the son that, that gives us a sense of confidence in what we hear from Jesus, but also that he is the heir of all things. Now, in a way, this can seem a little redundant. Wouldn't the son be the heir? But there's a reason why he highlights that Jesus is the heir. It's because he's making a point here about how at the end of your life, your heir kind of brings to a close your legacy. When you die, you will have a last will and testament. Many of you probably already have a last will and testament. If you haven't, you probably should think about getting one. They're helpful. But think about that name, last will and testament. It's like even though you are in the grave, this is your final word, your last testament, the last proclamation that comes from your lips. It's your last will, the last thing you want to see happen in this world. And even if you are familiar with wills, at the very beginning of wills, you will often say that anything that comes before this, that contradicts this, don't listen to it. What I say here is my very last and final truth in life. And so when the author is saying that Jesus is the heir, he's drawing that into our minds to think that what we see in Jesus is the very last word of God, the ultimate word of God. You know, it's interesting. You can actually see this in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is written in a way that reflects Greco-Roman wills. So then in the book of Revelation where it talks about anyone who would add or take away from this will receive curses, that was commonly used in wills at that time. It was a will written so that people wouldn't contradict or change what, what God had said. And the author of Hebrews speaks about Jesus in this way so that you know that he is the final word, that there is nothing that contradicts Jesus' word, that, that what we see in Jesus and what he has done is the final word. Nothing can change it or supersede it. You don't need anything more after you have heard from God by Jesus. The best has already come. The best has already been said. The best has already been done. But sometimes we run into people in, in different uh, religious traditions or different versions of Christianity or cults that say, yeah, you know, Jesus was great. He really started things. But then, you know, the church kind of messed things up. And you're like, well, yeah, I've seen the church. I can believe that. And then they'll say, but this person came along. 
This prophet came along, and, and they received a new revelation, and, and that helped set us right. And so we got Jesus and their voice, and that gets us where we need to go. But what does that say about Jesus? It says, well, he did a pretty good job, but we are more likely to mess it up than, than he is to keep us straight. What does that say about Jesus? He was a helpful word, but he wasn't the final word. There's something else you needed that he neglected to say. There's something else the world needed that he neglected to give it. There's something else the church needed that, that he didn't provide. And the author of Hebrews says, don't buy it. He is the heir. There is nothing that comes past him. All that he has done and has said is the ultimate and final truth because God has given him everything. And so he says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He sat down because his work was complete. There is nothing that still needed to be done. And he sits at the right hand of the majesty because he has the ear of God, the closest voice to the heavenly king. And there is no one who surpasses him, so that as he says in verse 8, quoting Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness. You've hated weakness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. His throne is complete, and nothing can supplant it, nothing can replace it, and nothing can be better than it. He's the heir. So don't look for anything else beyond him as though what he did wasn't sufficient. The story of divine revelation is a story of progress up to Christ. But there's no progression beyond him. He is the heir. And then the last point he makes about Jesus is that he's the ultimate revelation of God because, as he says, through whom he created the world. Jesus is the creator, and, and what this does is, again, it tells us how Jesus can be the ultimate revelation because he is above all creation. He's not a creature, he is the creator. And so the author says this in verse 10 about Jesus. He says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work on your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. There he says, Jesus is so above the creation that he laid its foundation. He's so above the creation that ultimately he says, he's going to roll it up like a worn-up garment. He's above and beyond the creation. That means that we can trust in him more than we can trust in the creation. How many of y'all were worried if the sun was going to come up this morning? How many of you are worried about gravity just stopping to work and us floating off into space? Now we live with confidence that those things will happen, but we have more confidence in Jesus because he's the one that made gravity. He's the one that made the sun. And the author of Hebrews wants you to understand that because he is the creator, nothing in creation can thwart him. Nothing in creation can challenge him. Nothing in creation can supersede him. What he wants, what he desires will happen because he is above all of creation. 
And so all the enemies in this world that seem to threaten us, the devil, death, politics, sin, finances, our bodies, ourself, all those enemies can't thwart Jesus because they are his creation and he's above it. And his voice was the one that spoke them into life. His voice is greater than their life. And the author of Hebrews wants you to rest in that voice because he is the creator. But what do we do with this reality that that Jesus is the ultimate revelation? The author of Hebrews wants you to realize how much you have in the voice that is Jesus so that you'll live life following that voice. So look down at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Don't you often find yourself drifting away? I do. At the beginning of the semester, as I I wonder about what will happen in my my work at NC State, it's easy to to wonder about the problems that are going to come up, the things that are going to thwart what I want to happen, and think that I'm alone there on the campus. It's easy to to look at myself and to the, the sins that I'm still struggling with and wonder, how can God use me? How can God love me? How can he continue to be faithful to me? I begin to listen to all these voices that surround me, and it's easy to listen to those voices in a way that drifts me off course. And I think I have to figure out my way back to God. But the author of Hebrews says, pay closer attention to what you have heard. Pay closer attention to Jesus. Hear that his voice is the ultimate voice, and follow that voice. Follow that voice. God gave Jesus to you because he wanted you to have the fullness of his heart revealed to you so that that is what guides you day in and day out. You know, it's interesting, Paul echoes these three categories in Romans chapter 8 as a way to help you to bring the reality of the revelation of Jesus down deep into your insecure heart. So in Romans 8, 31, he speaks of Jesus as the Son, saying, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He gave us his Son to demonstrate how much he loved us. What could challenge that love in our hearts or our mind? Do we hear that voice? He continues, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is condemned. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who at the, is seated at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He is the heir. He is the last word. Nothing can come in and contradict that voice so that nothing can come now and say, well, actually, you are condemned. His is the last word so that nothing can change your acceptance that he proclaims to you himself. Then Paul continues, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Do you hear those categories of creation? But then what does he say? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers 
nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul there says, don't let anything in creation tell you that, that you are in trouble because Jesus is the creator and he's over all those things and he is for you. So nothing can really be against you and take you away from his love. There, Paul is teaching us what, what the author of Hebrews is saying we should be like, people that bring in the fears and concerns and worries of our life to Jesus and says, speak into this part of me. When my heart condemns me, be greater than my heart and speak your acceptance. When this world feels fragile, speak into me your power so that I have confidence when I wonder, is there still something else I need to do? Is there still something else that needs to be done? Speak to me of the finality of your work so that I can rest in you. And the beauty of this passage is the way that the author of Hebrews ends and says, listen, you are not alone in this. But as he says, how shall we escape if we neglect a such great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord Jesus. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Do you hear the whole Trinity in that last section? In the way that he says, Jesus speaks this, God demonstrates this, and the Holy Spirit is a gift to help you to believe it. All of who God is is intent on helping you know all of who he is. And he gives himself fully and completely that you might know him. That's why the author of Hebrews says, you have such a great salvation that the whole God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit is working in your life that you might know him fully, that you might rest in his voice, that you might follow him into the arms of love. Let us pray. We thank you, Father, for the way that you speak fully and powerfully into our life and the way that Jesus most clearly gives us the fullness of your heart of grace for us. Help us to not neglect the voice that we hear in Jesus, but to daily grow in dependence and confidence on what he has said. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.